0: It's Tuesday, June fourteenth. Welcome to Mark Fuller. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, Chief Product Officer and Investor at Large, Tim Hanson.
1: I love I love that title that you created for me. It's really catching. It's on. all yours. get that on a business card. Uh, yes. Uh,
0: we're going to talk about something that has sort of been uh, looming in the background of uh, the business media for the past any number of weeks, and. Uh, we've not talked about it to this point. I thought, yeah, yeah I think we need to talk about that, this. And it's uh, the fabulous term Brexit. Uh, for those unfamiliar, it's a portmanteau word. That's a what? A portmanteau word. I, you just said another word I don't know.
1: Uh, it's, it's when you combine two or more individual words into, you know. Oh, okay. One word which now has a specialized meaning. So Brexit, I like brunch. Brunch, I like. <laughs>
0: I think I've said on this podcast before. I'm completely done with preneur. Sure, people who it's like uh, I'm a dad, but I've also got my own business. Dad di- I'm a dad preneur. Like, yeah, no, that, you're not right. You're an idiot. <laughs> uh, uh, the United Kingdom is set to vote on June 23rd on whether there should be a British exit, hence the term Brexit, from the European Union. If it leaves, then it won't have to. Contribute billions of dollars every year to pounds, do, actually. Pounds, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, to the EU budget. Um, but then you've got some people saying, look, this is actually going to hurt the economy. This is going to hurt investment in the UK. And this seems like one of those votes that uh, you don't have to go too far back in time to just sort of look at the polling and think, well, this is going to pass. Mm-hmm. No, you know, they're, they're not going to leave. And now it's looking very sort of.
1: It's looking like a 50 50 vote. I think the Brexiters pulled into the lead today. Um, it's interesting. I, you know, my, my gut still says that ultimately they're going to decide to, to stay. Um, it's interesting. The forces that are, you know, it, it's interesting globally. The political forces that are out there, um, you know, the political elites, for example, seem like they're all, whether they're officially neutral or officially positive, they're all leaning towards the sides of the status quo of staying in the, in the EU. Um, you know, certainly we've seen some in, in the United States also the, the popular will has gone opposite the political elites in, in many of the recent election results. So there, there's 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 some forces out there that are pushing um, establishment politicians to end up doing some slightly more radical things than maybe they were inclined to do in the first place. Brexit is certainly an example of that. I think the vote ends up coming out on the side of the status quo, but um, you know, whether it's this sense of unfairness that Britain's contributing too much money to the EU and not getting enough back, or this idea around immigration, you know, making the country worse off or less safe, um, you know, there are some very uh, strong willed viewpoints out there that, that, you know, ultimately I think from a business standpoint, you know, free trade and the access that being in the EU provides British companies uh, into Europe is a, is a positive thing. It's hard to find any big businesses or even small businesses who are in favor of, of the Brexit, but. Um, so be it. There are other things in the world in economics.
0: We've talked about this before, but when we talked about it before, it was in relation to Greece and whether or not Greece was going to leave the EU. And One of the points you made at that time, was because you, you were part of an analyst research team that went over, and, and if I'm remembering correctly, part of your impression in talking with economists, with business people in Greece was, just how hard it is to unwind.
1: Yeah, that was never thought through, right? Um,
0: and I'm assuming that is going to be the case here. That even if the, even if the vote is in favor of the UK leaving the European Union, that the actual unwinding of that is is going to be very complicated and and take a long time.
1: I agree. It certainly introduces a huge factor of uncertainty. I think that's why you're seeing stocks in the UK and Europe falling uh, recently. Uh, the pound weakening against the dollar. Um it's not clear what course they would chart to pursue with an exit strategy um you know and the market obviously hates uncertainty what what's interesting here is that uh, arguably there was a lot more there were a lot more g- better reasons for Greece to leave you know they could devalue their currency and try to pay back some of their debts and so forth britain leaving I don't know. You know I,
0: that's part of why we haven't talked about this t- uh, until this point because I just thought, well, they're not going to leave. Like it's not yeah, like yeah, I, yeah, right. I, in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, it's not like Greece,
1: right? Yeah, that
0: I understood.
1: <laughs> no, it's, that's why I say you know there the, there are other more powerful forces in the world than economics and um, emotions around some of those issues are running high, and you know they're going to be knock on consequences for this to follow through. I, I think ultimately, when people get to the polling place. Um, Cast ballots. You know the bluster of some of that stuff wears off, and maybe you make a more sensible decision when the gravity of the situation is you putting pen to paper or finger to touchscreen. I'm not sure how they're voting in the UK <laughs> these days, um, but we'll see. We'll see. Stranger things have happened. Do you think that there are any industries that
0: are rooting one way or the other? And and let me go one step further and say that that feel like there is uh, a higher upside. From a profit standpoint, if the UK goes one way or the other, because you had said before that you're unaware of any sort of large or small businesses that's thinking, "Oh yeah, we should leave." They're they're very much in favor of the status quo.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, because having access to those markets to sell your goods, especially if you're a consumer goods company, um, it, it, it's much easier to, to sell when you don't have you know to pay duties or do trade financing to get across borders, and your inventory is being stopped at the border to get inspected, and so on and so forth. I mean, from from a consumer, like a consumer good standpoint, I mean, it's a, it's a no-brainer that you'd want to stay in a place where um, you have open markets.
0: Yesterday was merger Monday with Microsoft and LinkedIn, but another merger appears to be in the works. DraftKings and FanDuel, which are the two biggest daily fantasy sports companies, are in talks about a merger. And while they are in and of themselves private companies, they are backed by. Uh, a variety of investments, including from public companies, the, the likes of which include Comcast, Time Warner.
1: Madison Square Garden is invested. Yep, in them as well.
0: they are. They are invested as well. Uh, but they're also invested in the Knicks. <laughs> An investment that's that's probably doing better. I, I'm guessing the valuation of the New York Knicks has not been cut in half over the last year well. because. <laughs> Because DraftKings and FanDuel, these were these were unicorns. These were billion-dollar private companies, and now, at least according to Bloomberg, their valuations have probably been cut in
1: half because they're 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 money infernos, Chris. <laughs> <You, laughs>
0: they certainly they certainly were at one point spending a lot of money on advertising. You want to
1: light some money on fire? You give it to these guys. They, I think you know these are private companies, so that the information is not um, not not out there in its entirety, but. You know, I think I think these companies are losing on the order of 400, 500 million dollars a year, on revenues of less than that, um, because of all of the online and offline marketing spend that they they do. And and obviously that's what makes the merger enticing to the people running these companies, is because effectively they do the exact same thing, and compete against each other, and drive up ad rates against one another when they try to bid for any you know any sort of TV advertising or online advertising. Um, if you combine them into a single public or a single company, then they could be a lot more rational about what they pay to advertise, and and you'd see some of that drop directly to the bottom line. So obviously, you know, we make a lot of jokes about synergies when it comes to murders. Uh, excuse me, when it comes to merger. Yeah. <laughs> but um, when you have two companies literally doing the exact same thing, those synergies can be real, and it would be a reduced ad spend. Um, you know, some interesting thoughts out there in the media around whether or not this would end up getting reviewed as being a potential monopoly um, because even though technically barriers to entry are low in this space, they are going up with some of the regulations that states are putting out. So that'd be an interesting interesting line of thought to follow down. but um, the merger makes a lot of sense for both companies due to, due to their burn rates on cash. Um, it'd be interesting to see how they decide to proceed with it and also um, what the regulatory review would be.
0: I'm looking at these two businesses, and even as a merged entity, I'm wondering how, how big that entity could be, how profitable it could be, because this this does seem particularly as large states, New York first and foremost among them, are cracking down on this as gambling. I I look at this as sort of in this nether region between flat out gambling, Mm -hmm. like you'll see in Las Vegas, and Just basic fantasy football for no money involved that you see in offices around the country and Mm -hmm. and presumably around the world. That you can set up a team on CBS Sports websites, Yahoo Sports, you know, any number of of places you can do that. And I just sort of look at this and, and go, I'm not even sure how great a business this is to be in. I feel like you would almost want to be at one end of the spectrum or the other. You'd want to go full on. Vegas, or you'd want to be have the best fantasy integration that becomes really sticky for a larger media company like, like a CBS.
1: That's an interesting question. I, I mean, from like a from a gross margin perspective, these things are probably churning off like ninety ninety five percent. I mean, they have no cost of goods sold. I mean, they're not even the counterparties on these bets or fantasy plays, right? You, right. You're finding the counterparty in their system, so they're just taking the money out of the transaction. So in that sense it's a it's a good business on the on the on the gross profit line. Where they're losing money is obviously on the operating profit line because they're spending so much on marketing and on, on traffic and customer acquisition. Um, you know, I think your question probably gets to what is the total addressable market size of people who bet on small sports things on the internet. On but a daily basis. On a, well, yeah, and they could even drive that down. I think there you know, they're people probably making multiple bets per day. You could make bets in, in intra game and so on and so forth. Um, but you know, let's say they're making let's say together they'd make 250 million dollars a year. If in fact their gross margin is 90 percent, then you've got 225 million. and then let's say they're able to rationalize their spend. I mean, you could have a nice not a bad little business that that's that's spitting off cash.'d um, it be interesting to see where they where they go with that. I mean, I agree the total adjustable market f- for people who are going to have to put money up to play fantasy sports is probably probably lower, but you know who knows?
0: at fool.com is our email address from Sam Conway in Boston, who writes, Yesterday you talked about Jason Moraz and his investment in avocados. I was somewhat surprised by Jason Moser talking about how avocados are a limited seasonal item and hence a good investment. However, they are not anymore, and I only know this because Fact
1: check, <laughs> Jason Moser.
0: Hashtag, hashtag, hashtag Jason <laughs> Roger. Uh I only know this because I hold a company called Calivo Growers, ticker symbol CVGW, in my portfolio. They have performed very well for me over the past three years, and I discovered them by using value identifying techniques, which guests of your show frequently espouse. Are you f- you're familiar with Calivo?
1: Yeah, I've looked at this this company in the past as a, as a. I mean, let's let's you know get this out of the way at the beginning. Guacamole is delicious. It, <laughs> So as a tailwind for investing thesis, we're not going to we're not going to argue about this. <laughs> You've got that. There's no there's no other side to that argument. Like you know, is there an investing thesis with as bulletproof a premise as guacamole is delicious? Um, yeah, I came across some years ago. Um, you know, if you go back a few years before Chipotle stumbled upon its its own troubles, I mean, they had guacamole shortages and avocado shortages, and and obviously global supplies of avocado have gone way up in response to that. Um, this stock has been on a rocket. Probably because of the thesis that guacamole is delicious. Um, you know, what always troubled me about them, I never pulled the trigger. Um, but kudos to was Sam in Boston. Sam, Sam. Sam, kudos to Sam for doing so. The thing about Calibo that threw me off is that they don't they're really they're a middleman. so they procure avocados and then they distribute them. And now, distributing avocados for people who buy avocados, you know they can ripen and go bad quite quickly. So, it is a little bit of a good trick to be a good distributor of avocados. But it's a commodity, you know, most middleman businesses, it's a commodity business, a lot of competition. Um, You know, Calvo's been trying to differentiate themselves by getting to more value added products like guacamole, salsa, that sort of thing, um, because there's more margin there. But it's a, you know, sales uh, of both units and dollars have been up pretty sharply over the last few years as demand for avocados goes up. Um, profits haven't quite followed suit, although they have gotten better, but it's still a low margin business. Um, that's, but that's, that's the story there. I mean, the bottom line guacamole is, is delicious. <laughs> I think we'll end there. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thank you, buddy.
0: As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Fuller. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.